Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 11. As we start a new chapter today, a Bible study that I've entitled, Your Future is Written by God. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God. You might want to jot that down, the sovereignty of God. You can spell it S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y, the sovereignty of God. This is the doctrine or the teaching that describes God's absolute authority and absolute power in this world and more personally in our lives. When you think of God's sovereignty, think of God's unlimited power, think of his unlimited control over the affairs of nature and of history. The Bible teaches us that God is working out his sovereign plan of redemption for the world. And the conclusion is certain. Another word to consider when we think of sovereignty is God's omnipotence. Omnipotence. That speaks of his power. Or another way of describing it, his all-encompassing power. God is almighty. And he is all-powerful. That's not just some meme you see on Instagram. It's not some post on Facebook. It is the truth in our lives. God is all-powerful. Jot it down in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. That was God's promise to the nation of Israel under the old covenant. The principle of God is even greater now in the new covenant. God's plans for you. Now, if God wasn't sovereign, if he didn't have all power, then what difference does his plans mean? I mean, think about this for a second. This verse is so encouraging if you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe in all his all-powerful nature, which he describes himself. We didn't make that up. God describes himself that way. In the good times, God is sovereign. In the difficult times, God is sovereign. And in order for Jeremiah 29, 11, in order for anything in the scriptures to be encouraging, we need to trust in the author of the scriptures that he can bring to pass what he says. Now in difficult times, we're reminded, I think it's especially in difficult times, we, our, our lives come up against this sense of, do I really believe God is sovereign or not? Do I really believe he cares? I mean, it brings us to the age-old question that is on the lips of 90-year-olds and on the lips of nine-year-olds, and that is, if God is good, then why does he allow evil? If he's so sovereign then why is there so much bad in the world? And and it brings a mind, a logical, rational mind, which God created. God is not against logic and reasoning at all. No, as a matter of fact, in Isaiah, God invites us to come and reason with him. And so in our logical minds, we come up against, this doesn't make sense to me. And one of the reasons why it doesn't make sense to you and me is because not only are we not omnipotent, all-powerful, we're also not omniscient. We don't have all knowledge. You see, if we had all knowledge, we would understand what's going on. But because we're living our lives in real time, and by the way, 
I've said this before, but it's good to be reminded. As we're reading of people in the Bible, real men and women, they live life in real time. They don't know what's up ahead. You know, we, have, we can turn the page and go, oh, don't worry about it, Joseph. Don't worry about it. 13 years and things are going to just, just wait it out. He doesn't know. He doesn't know if it's going to end in 13 seconds, 13 years, or if it's ever going to end, just like you and me. But if we had all knowledge, then we would know what God knows. And if we knew what God knew, then we would do what God would want us to do. But we don't. And so we trust by faith as God has demonstrated in times past of his omniscience and his omnipotence. We're reminded that God has sovereign purposes for his people to give us a future and a hope. And so we learn in, Jan in chapter 10 that Daniel is about 85, 90 years old and he was praying for 21 days and the answer comes. And he gets an answer and we have the message that he brought. Chapter 11 is the answer to Daniel's prayer. The best way to view this section, and again, you're gonna to have to put your prophetic lens back on, the best way to view this section is through the lens of Daniel's 70 weeks that he gave us in chapter nine. We studied those, if you weren't with us, study in chapter nine, one of the most, if not the most important part of biblical prophecy, learning about the 70 weeks of Daniel. There was the 69 weeks, remember, and then the one. 69 weeks are fulfilled, and we await the fulfillment of that last week in the prophetic time clock with Israel in the future. If you're looking for prophetic insight on the things that are happening in the world, you've got to keep your eye on Israel. Israel is the epicenter of God's prophetic timetable and God's prophetic unveiling of the final days. It's Israel. It's not the United States of America. It's not Russia. It's not Lebanon. It's not Saudi Arabia. It's not Iraq and Iran. It's Israel. Israel is the epicenter. And now in chapter 11, in the study before us today, in verses 1 through 35, we're going to see things that, that already happened in the 69 weeks of Daniel. And then in our next study, through the end of the chapter, we're going to learn of things that will occur in the last seven years. Now for you Bible students, what is, what do we know, what is the title of the last seven years of human history? What's the title? How do we know it? Primarily, how do we know it? That 70th week of Daniel is known as what? The Great Tribulation Period. You're right. And it's unfolded for us in the end of Revelation. Now, some of you might have said Jacob's trouble. You're right as well. Because there's quite a few names uh, in the scriptures for the last seven years of human history. But commonly, it's known as the Great Tribulation Period. In our study next time, we'll see the things that occur still yet future. But pick up with me in verse 1 now, chapter 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation here in Daniel chapter 11. It says, I have been standing beside Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others, and he will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Now remember, Daniel has been in Babylon for 70 years. 
It started way back in chapter one when he was literally kidnapped and taken captive. And then they began the process of brainwashing him. Him and his friends were highlighted, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet in this time period as young men, they purposefully committed to following God. And they were not brainwashed, but rather they become stellar examples of how you can live in a broken, fallen, messed up world and still honor God. And you can be involved in highest level of leadership in government, in business. You can be a part of this world and its world system without being sinful and without having it corrupt you. And you can be used. Now that's a testimony throughout the scriptures. Another example I think of that was in Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah had a high level responsibility in government and yet he kept his commitment to the Lord and his faith only got stronger, not weaker. So Daniel's been in Babylon now for 70 years. And at this point, the Babylonians have been overthrown. The Medes and the Persians are in power. Darius the king, remember, was there during the lion's den. And so the angel speaks of three more kings to come and the fourth will come and stir up trouble against Greece. That fourth king, as we look back, now Daniel doesn't know, but that fourth king, as we look back from history, his name is Xerxes, and his wealth was unbelievable. He was determined to wipe out Greece, and for four years, he built an army over, of over two and a half million fighting men, and he marched north and battled the Greeks and won. And yet in that victory, his army was weakened along with his strength, and Greece eventually rose up in great power. Remember, we were given all this in the dreams that we studied earlier of the successive kingdoms that were to come. Now notice in verse three, then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold up the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now this leader, this mighty king that arises to power and rules with great authority and accomplishes, check this out, everything he set out to do, his name, Alexander the Great. Again, Daniel doesn't know this, but we look back and go, oh, exactly what God predicted came to pass. And remember, Alexander the Great, what was his desire? To rule the known world. And he did it much more rapidly than he expected. And we've studied this in previous studies. But again, this is a very precise prophecy. Let's look at it again. At the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. Well, you history students, you can look back and you can see that after Alexander the Great, it was indeed divided into four parts. Cassander took over the area of Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took over Asia Minor and Trace. Seleucus took over Syria and Babylonia. And Ptolemy took Egypt, Israel, and the island of Cyprus. It is so incredibly detailed and precise and accurate. I know there are people that make fun of the Bible. They make fun of prophecy. You know, as we begin to even look at what's happening in our world today, we, we see men rising up calling for a, literally, like this is no joke. This is no pastor pounding a table or a pulpit. Like you literally have people right now 
publicly, openly, without any hesitation, calling for a one-world leader. We need help. This crisis has shown us that we don't need all this fractured leadership. And, you know, I have to say, as you look around the world today, you look at the various levels of leadership, it is fractured. This country's doing it this way. This guy's doing it that way. This, the president does it this way. But then by the time the doctor does it this way, and then there's the mayor, then there's the governor, and he's like, whoa. And it seems like it's a setup for, all, for the world that's alive during that time. Of course, as believers, we're, as believers, uh, unless you are deceived and you fall away, you're not going to go for a one-world leader. You're not going... You, the Bible predicts it, and it predicts it within the time of the Great Tribulation period. What this world it needs is not a one-world leader that we know as the Antichrist. What this world needs... Listen, this is personal. I'm not just talking about the population of the world. What this world needs, and since you're a part of this world, is to repent of their sins and surrender their life to Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. This, this world isn't going to be saved. It's not going to last forever. The Bible says there will be a new earth, a new heavens, that the things that of this earth will roll up like a scroll with fervent heat. What's needed in the solution, listen, What's needed in the solution of your life right now is for you to acknowledge just how far you are from God. You're crying out, I need this. But the answer is, you need God. You need to recognize that God is sovereign in your life and admit it. You need to recognize that your, the condition of your life was so desperate and so bad. You could even use the word wretched. You know, in one of the famous hymns, it talks about God saving a wretch like me. It does, the song doesn't say saves a wretch like you. The song says saves a wretch like me. And as you sing that song, you acknowledge that our condition apart from God was in desperate need. And man's greatest need was met by God's greatest deed because he reached out in love, sending his own son Jesus Christ to die for your sins and mine. So enough of this calling out for a one world leader. Enough of this for crying out for our, you know, we studied through the book of Judges, how the judges did that which was right in their own eyes. And then when they got in trouble, God sent them a deliverer. And then they calmed down for a little while. And then they went and got, they were worse because they never really dealt with the heart issue. It was, they, what they did, they didn't need a leader. They needed to repent. And that's, your, that's got what God needs for us too. And then let's just speak again. So in a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never been born again, then I'm going to invite you to follow Jesus in just a few moments when we finish our study. But I also want to speak to you that name the name of Christ. You're not out of the woods. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so many people make that a debate. You go, oh, wait a minute. You know, why would we need to confess our sins? We're already believers. I'm going to tell you why we confess our sins. Because even though we're believers, we still sin. And that confession, that word in the, in the Greek language literally means to say the same thing. And so there's a sense of repentance, not unto salvation, but unto relationship. It's the same thing when you are in an argument with your spouse, 
or you're in an argument with your kids, or you're in an argument with your, your sister or your brother, and, and it just blows up. And, and you come to her, you come to him, and you say, will you forgive me for what I just did? Like, it's not like you weren't sister and brother anymore. No, you're asking for forgiveness not to say, not so that you can become, oh, dad, I hope you'll be my dad again. No, you're a son, a daughter. You're a brother or sister admitting your sin so that you might enjoy what? Fellowship again and relationship. And that, that unrighteous behavior can be put in the past. No, when you confess your sin, you're not getting saved over and over and over again. It's not that you haven't experienced the forgiveness of God for all of your sins past, present, and even the future. No, it's your acknowledgement that your present condition is now out of relationship with God. Like you're not enjoying it. Is he still God? Yes. Does a believer sin? Does, does that believer stay a believer? Yes. But you lose all the benefits. And so even as you a follower of Jesus today. You know, I was thinking, if this crisis hasn't brought maturity into your life, you've wasted another trial. You know, when great trial came upon my life, I started reading all kinds of things just so the Lord could clear my mind and I could have new insights poured into my heart. And I forget who it was, man. I read so much, I don't even know who it was. So I can't give the specific quote. But someone said, Someone wrote, someone taught, I don't remember, but I'm owning it as my own. Uh, I know someone else said it, but it's mine too. And, and they said, I learned that I didn't want to waste my trial. And what they meant by that is the trial is the trial. We're in the midst of it. But are we going to waste it through complaining and murmuring and running away from God, upset with him, mad at him, or are we going to embrace what God is doing in our lives through the trial, through the testing, because it is in our lives currently. And the church has been shaken by this. Jesus said that in the latter days, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And we've been shaken, church. Has it strengthened us? Is our faith stronger? I hope so. Because you see, prophecy, even though people make fun of prophecy, prophecy is the calling card of God. The prophecies are so precise, as we learned in previous studies, people say Daniel didn't write Daniel. Or they say Daniel didn't write Daniel when Daniel wrote Daniel. Uh, because they just can't take it. But again, when you open up the Bible, go ahead and hold your place here in Daniel. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 with me for a moment. Just, just, just think of this, Genesis chapter 1, and again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You can read it from whatever you're using, but here's what the New Living Translation says, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the whole book starts, and, and it challenges you in the very first second of opening up the Bible. If you believe chapter 1, verse 1, which you should, <laughs> the rest of the Bible is very believable. You believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth. Not a little idol on your dashboard, not what some pastor, some priest, some person told you, not some false televangelist, not some weird cultic doctrine. Listen, you believe in the God of all creation, the creator and sustainer of all things. 
then you look back in Daniel, can, Dan, can God answer a prayer with precise prophetic insight? Say it out loud. The answer is yes. Of course he can. Now, God speaks history as it's already happened. That's prophecy. You could write next, next to prophecy if you haven't already, history in advance. That's what God is able to do. Give us history in advance. Again, jot it down, Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 25. The Bible says, and God speaks through Ezekiel, for I am the Lord, if I say it, it will happen. <laughs> I like that. If I say it, it will happen. There will be no more delays, you rebels of Israel. I will fulfill my threat of destruction in your own lifetime. I, the sovereign Lord, there's that word again, sovereign Lord, I, the all-powerful, the all-encompassing power of God, have spoken. I like that. Mark that. If I say it, it will happen. And looking back on God's promises, again, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he has promised. Listen, this is so overwhelming. Uh, even some things on my mind today. Listen, this just speaks right to my heart. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. That's why the book of Daniel is so comforting to the Christian. It confirms our faith. It, it strengthens our resolve and settles our mind. So much has already been worked out that you can't deny it unless a person simply dismisses it altogether. You just can't deny it. These, I mean, right here, what we're reading, these, Alexander the Great gets, he, he conquers the known world at the time. He's discouraged by it. He's like, I can't believe it. There's nothing else more to conquer. He commits suicide, and then his kingdom is divided between four of his generals. It happened. Look it up. See. You don't even need to look it up. God said it happened, but you can look it up. And it's really not possible, one more final thought, it's not possible to have a full understanding of the Bible. It's not possible to understand the true heart of God without a firm grip on eschatology. That's a fancy word for the study of end times. Eschatology. The study of end times, or what we commonly call prophecy. You know, the, a quarter of the Bible is prophetic. And, and some, depending on how you look at it, some say over a third of the Bible is prophetic. And a quarter of it was prophetic when it was written. But it's unbelievable the fact that God alone can predict the future with 100% accuracy. Why? Because he's God and he's sovereign. Now, notice verse 5. The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She'll be abandoned along with all of her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. Verse 8. When he returns to Egypt, he'll carry back their idols with them, along with the priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. 
However, the sons of the kingdom of north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then, in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. Verse 13. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a great general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision, but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He will make his plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He'll give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within. But his plan will fail. After this, he'll return and his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and will be seen no more. Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. And after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. Now, again, remember, this is an answer to Daniel's prayer. And the answer to Daniel's prayer was a revelation of what's to come. Again, in that time period before, in the 69 weeks, uh, that time period before uh, the Great Tribulation period, that time period that happened right, right in successive kingdoms. So these are detailed prophecies of Egypt. Close to 200 years of history are contained in these verses. And the question becomes, why would God give such detailed information between this stuff between Syria and Egypt? Well, if you're a note taker, let me give you a few things. A few things to consider. Number one, the warfare between the north and the south affected Israel. Now, I've already shared, what's the epicenter of God's prophetic time clock? Israel. So anything in the scriptures, you're going to want to do a couple things. If it's prophetic, we want to make sure where is the nation of Israel involved, number one. And then another thing with the scriptures is remember that in the volume of the book, it is written of Jesus. So as you're studying through the scriptures, we want to learn what is this saying about the coming Messiah or what is this saying about the Messiah that's come? So the scripture is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're studying prophecy, you want to remember, how does this affect Israel? Israel was right in the middle of it all, and they survived. Because Jewish survival is miraculous. You won't find any other group or any other nation that has been so dogged and so hassled and so uh, maligned and so persecuted, even to the point of seeing the Holocaust occur. No other group has experienced so much, has been dispersed, has been held in captivity more than the Jewish people, and still they survive, and still they exist, 
And still they are in their homeland that was promised to them by God so many thousands of years later. Today, the Jews are returning. Now, not so much in the moment right now as I'm delivering this Bible study, only because the airline industry is pretty much closed down. But today, in this general time period, since, since the last 50 years, so many Jewish people are returning to their homeland. Unbelievable. If, if we didn't have the things going on in the crisis right now, in the coronavirus crisis, I, we would be able to just easily flip out what, how many planes landed in Israel today and at least one of them would have refugees coming home because God is calling his people home just like he predicted. Israel today is nine million people surrounded by a billion enemies. Unbelievable. God is detailed in showing his care and concern for Israel over the years. Number two, why would this be included? For historical accuracy. In giving us a precise historical background before it occurs of someone who is real, a real enemy of the Jews, it shows the historical accuracy one more time of the scriptures. This man, we know his name, looking back, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and we see the unbelievable things that he did. Thirdly, we're shown God's track record as God. Remember, this is an answer to prayer. Like this was Daniel, this stuff was on Daniel's heart. God answered it. There are some 135 specific prophecies in this chapter, and that's a lot, and they're fulfilled to the smallest detail. We know that God is so detailed in the past. I just, I just want to encourage you as you're wrestling with today that you look back on the history of God in dealing with you personally so that you can be reminded of his faithfulness. I mean, God has been so good to you. We, Pastor Ian even introduced that song to us of, of the goodness of God and how we can look back and see how God has been so faithful and good, how he is reliable, how he has got us through even some of the worst, most difficult things, that there isn't anything that God hasn't done that he said he's going to do. And what is still yet to be fulfilled, he's going to fulfill it. And here 135 specific prophecies are given and they're fulfilled to the smallest detail. And listen, if God has been so detailed in the past, don't you think he cares about the details of your life? I mean, you might be thinking right now, God doesn't care about me. You know, Ed, he cares more about you because, you know, you're a pastor and I'm nobody. No, actually, we're both nobody and God cares for us both. It doesn't matter what we do. Even as we were learning this weekend, uh, you know, we, we often identify ourselves by what we do. But God doesn't identify us by what we do. He identifies us by who we are. You're his son and his daughter. You, you are his friend. You are his servant. You know, you're, you know, when you think of servant, like God has brought you in that place of servanthood to the highest level of relationship with him. He's not, so, he's not as interested in what we do as we are interested in what we do. And what's been hassling you? Things that have been troubling you. Issues at work or having your hours cut, concerns at home, you know, the kids going sideways, money's tight, faith and been replaced with worry, 
Uh, you're not sure how this is going to be taken care of and you know a bill's due on Friday and you know you got to get tires for the car and, and you, you, you know you're, you've got a mechanic shop and you need cars uh, to fix and on and on the list goes. Guys, don't ever be afraid. And I've taught a Bible study on this in, in its entirety, but please don't ever be afraid to trust an unknown future to a well-known God, which is why we're in his word which is why we read the scriptures, which is why we ask him, God, reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. Lead me and guide me. Why? Because when we know God, we trust him. You know, when you know someone and you, you, you know them personally and they make a mistake, you're more quick to forgive because you know them. You know they didn't mean it. You know they weren't, um, they weren't trying to hurt you. You know and so you cut each other some slack. Well, the more you know God, the more you trust him. And I know God doesn't need to be cut any slack, but in a very real way, you need to cut God some slack. It's, it's, it's not a lack of his power or sovereignty. It's all part of his plan. And we're all going to face difficulties. So notice in verse 21, and let's close up today, in verse 21, it says, The next to come to power will be a despicable man, Antiochus Epiphanes who's not in line for royal succession. He'll slip in when last expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he'll make various alliances. He'll become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he'll enter the richest areas of the land and he'll distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He'll plot to overthrow the strongholds, but this will last for only a short while, verse 25. Then he'll stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, and there'll be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table attempting to deceive each other, but it'll make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. So a lot of space is, is reserved for these Seleucid kings. And verses 21 through 27 speak of how Antiochus IV rose to power. All of this was fulfilled in the time period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, uh, those 400 years of silence. This was Antiochus Epiphanes, who in previous studies, we met him earlier. Verse 28. The king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself up against the people of the Holy Covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south, but this time the result will be different. For warships and western coastlands will scare him off, and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Or you might remember this in the New King James as the abomination of desolation. He will flatter and win over those people who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. Wise, leader will give wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword 
and we, they will be jailed and robbed. During the persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution, and in this way they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. So he sweeps down, the Bible says, from the north through Israel into Egypt. Roman troops heard about it, stopped him. No more, we'll destroy you if you don't stop now. And this brought a lot of anger into his life. And he went back through Jerusalem, took his anger out on the people by bringing that desecration right into the temple. The practice of circumcision, the reading of the law, the observance of sacrifice and festivals, these were all forbidden during this time on the penalty of death. And devout Jews, listen, it was so bad that devout Jews were forced to eat pig's flesh even to offer up ritually unclean animals and to defile themselves with every kind of uncleanness and profane action, as one commentator mentions. He rededicated the Jewish temple of Tychicus Epiphanes to the Greek god Zeus. And he changed the sacrificial system and decided no more would lambs, goats, and rams be offered. And he only offered pigs on their brass altar. And he himself offered up the sacrifice of a pig and then took its juices and spread them throughout the temple. The event that is described here as the sacrilegious, he set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration is often known as the abomination of desolation. It's already happened in the past, but it also points it also points to an event that will happen still yet in the future of a world leader that will arise in that final week of Daniel, the great tribulation period, and look an awful lot like it, Antiochus Epiphanes because he becomes a type of the Antichrist, which will be our study next time. Amazing things that God has for us in Daniel. And, and I think that today God would have us to remember his faithful, sovereign, power in our lives God is faithful and reliable and I know it's a lot of history for you history buffs you're like yes 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 <laughs> for, for those of you that aren't history buffs it's like whoa wait what and what did he mean and explain that and what significance well remember Israel is very important so things that happen around Israel very important God already gave insight of the successive kingdoms to come and here we see things revealed of the successive kingdoms that have come and the battles that are going on with Rome and Syria and Egypt. Things happening with Greece. Unbelievable, the clarity and specific, the specific insights that God gives us in his word. So can I remind you one more time, can I encourage you as your friend, as your pastor, uh, as a Bible teacher, would you make it a point to have regular devotional a regular devotional time in God's word every day, sometimes more than once a day, that the word of God would just get into you. Don't read it like necessarily like a student, although studying it's important. And there is time for study. But read it as a disciple and a follower of Jesus as if you were following Jesus yourself physically, hanging on every word, wanting to grow, because God has a word for you every day. No matter where you're at in the word, it doesn't matter. 
wherever you are in God's word, that's the timing of God for you. Even as I've been in Samuel recently, just learning. Today I was reading about, uh, and I'm a little behind, so maybe you're a little behind. So I'm reading a little bit behind of my regular reading plan. So that's just where I'm at today. And I was just reminded of how God, uh, how, how God, or how David wanted to build the temple. And then Nathan came and said, go for it, do all that's in your heart. But there's no mention of David, you know, uh, there's no mention of Nathan. David has the desire, Nathan, his friend, comes. There's no mention of, of David really seeking the Lord. There's no mention of David really um, being led by the Lord. He just wants to do something great for the Lord, which is wonderful. But we know later on that David is not going to build the temple, but rather his son's going to build it. And he's going to be used to get everything ready. And what an encouragement that even when, because David's hands were hands of war, the Bible says, they were bloodied. And so even when things that we've done have caused great consequence in our life, God is still going to use us. God can still use us. And David didn't get to build the temple himself. But his son Solomon did with all that God got ready. So I wonder what God's doing in our lives to get ready for the next generation and for the next folks that come after us, the next people we're gonna meet. Everything that God is doing now is in preparation for what's up ahead because God's always on the move and and he is revealing himself day by day in the word. So even if this was your daily devotional, if this was your daily devotional, you might need to take a, go to blueletterbible.org or take out a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, or take out a Haley's Bible handbook, which you can get for free online, Haley's Bible handbook. As you're studying it, it will help you get through some of the difficult chapters to learn about the historical significance and the prophetic insights. Don't give up on your daily devotions. Don't give up on those difficult parts of the scripture. Be encouraged that the God of prophecy in the past is the God of prophecy in the present. And everything he said he's gonna do, he's gonna gonna do, and it's gonna come to pass. So Father, we're asking you to take this word and speak it deep into our hearts and our minds that we might um, be encouraged in understanding that you have a precise plan and purpose working all things together for the good in our lives. That even in our prayer life, you know, as we're praying and you send an answer and the answer is pretty startling, like it doesn't seem to make sense, that we would just jot it down and say that's the answer and pray for clarity and not give up on you so quickly because we don't understand things. I think that's the word, that we wouldn't be so quick to give up on you just because we don't understand. We tend to value understanding over and above faith, God. And and the believer does not live by explanations. The believer in Jesus Christ lives by faith. And are you here today with me? Are you here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ? I want to invite you to follow Jesus today. I get the picture of Jesus with coming up to Matthew at the tax collector table. And just looking at him and saying, you come follow me. You come follow me. The the invitation of Jesus Christ throughout the ages is for you to come follow him. He didn't invite you to join a church or get on the membership rolls. He didn't invite you to become a good religious boy or a good religious girl. 
that, that went through baptism as an infant and confirmation and, and all the things that, you know, that a good religious person would do. He didn't invite you to become a part of a church. He wants you to be the church and he invites you to follow him. Jesus said this, this is how God loved the world, that he gave his own one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It is God's will for you to have eternal life. It's his desire. But he's not going to force you. He's not going to make you. He invites you. Come, taste, see that the Lord God Almighty is good. But notice, John 3.16 is what I wrote. And, and if you notice in a Bible, it's in red letters. So it's something Jesus taught us. But he doesn't end there. Listen to what he says in the next verse. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone that believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light because their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And if you're here today with us and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today is that day. I'm gonna invite you to confess your sins before God, to literally ask God for your repentance, for your, to literally repent of your sins and ask God for his forgiveness. So you can say, you can pray with me, you can repeat after me, and you can even modify the words that reflect your life. But you could say something like this, Dear God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins, the ones that I know and the ones that I don't. I believe you sent your son and one and only son into this world to die for me. And I believe Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins. I believe he was buried and I believe Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And I want to follow him all the days of my life. I openly and willingly turn my life away from my sinful past. And I'm dedicated to following you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.